That was an amazing choir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. I'm sorry what I said about staying in bed listening to it rain. Uh, <laughs> choir was amazing today. Welcome, everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. Welcome all of you in Cafe Worship this morning. Anybody joining us by video or audio podcast, uh, we love you. You honor us by joining us for worship uh, each week, and, and we want to thank you. I've started a new message series entitled Black and White in a Gray World. We're talking about morality. We're talking about how difficult it is in our day and age, in our society, to actually talk about moral absolutes. In other words, something that would be right and wrong for everyone. It's become very, very difficult. In our culture, there's not so much talk about doing the right thing anymore. It's more talking about my personal rights or the things that, that, that I have a right to do no matter how it affects you, no matter what you say. In other words, I'm free to do what I want to do and you have no right to judge me. Uh, that's more or less the, the ethic of, of our society. And, and I would agree with you insofar as you are free, you have free will to make your choices and I am not the one to judge you. You're correct in that. The difficulty becomes in, in the simple fact that the choices you make in your freedom and the choices I make may harm me or may harm others. And anytime we get into that, uh, th those actions that harm either ourselves or others, that, that, that's typically the category that the Bible calls sin. And when the Bible speaks of sin, you and I, as people of the book, we need to be able to talk about sin. And that's the difficulty today. Because if we don't talk about sin, then we can't talk about forgiveness. And if we lose the language of forgiveness, then we no longer have the ability to speak of the gospel at all. So when we talk about morality, when we talk about blacks and whites in a world that is so full of moral grays, I insist we have to be able to combine two things. We have to combine first conviction. Conviction, and that's a simple commitment to the truth, the truth of God's word, the truth of Christ, the truth of the Holy Spirit. We have to be fully committed to the truth that God reveals, that those are our convictions. And we really can't compromise on our convictions, the ones that come from God's word. I'm not talking about our opinions. I'm not talking about our culture traditions. I'm talking about the convictions of truth that come from God's word. We can't compromise those. We can't exchange on those. These are the things that, that God has said for all of us, all time, everywhere. So conviction is important, but conviction always has to be combined with compassion. In other words, if there is objective morality, then there's also unconditional love. And we have to know how to keep those two things together. It's not enough to preach at the world. It's not enough to point out what everybody does is wrong. We have to, we have to hold our convictions at the same time we hold together a heart full of love for people. This is the only way that I see to be Christians in the world today, compassion and conviction. And maybe these two things come together most importantly when we talk about something like the moral tragedy of abortion. I want to talk about abortion this morning. Matthew chapter 2 is where I ask you to turn with me. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 13. I, th I think it's complicated to preach about something like abortion. F for one thing, my hunch is it doesn't affect very many of you never affected very many of you. So for you, we're talking about an abstract issue, something you may have very strong feelings about. You may be very happy that I'm preaching it today, but it's an issue for you, something abstract. But, but there are some of you in this house today and in the sound of my voice for whom this is a very deep and personal issue. 
Either you've had personal experience with abortion or you know someone close to you who has. And for that reason, it'll never be an abstract issue. It is always going to be personal. I just don't ever want us to talk about things like this as if they're abstract issues. They're always people. We're always talking about people. So with a heart of compassion and an eye for truth, let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. This is a part of what is usually the Christmas story, but it's the, one of the most painful parts of the story. Just listen. After the wise men were gone, you're with me, it's Christmas. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet when he said, I called my son out of Egypt. Verse 16, King Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outsmarted him. He sent soldiers. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of when the star first appeared. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. For all of us, I guess the question just becomes, who could kill a baby? I mean, I mean, who could kill a baby? And as it turns out in Scripture, of course, for one, King Herod. King Herod kills a, a, a number of baby boys in Bethlehem right around the time Jesus was born. Why would he do that? Well, according to Scripture, he does it out of fury. He does it out of anger because he felt like the wise men, remember the 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 three wise men, the wise men who'd come from the east to, to visit and worship Jesus, they stopped by Herod's office on the way into town, and they told him their story, how they had seen a star and how a king had been born, and they wanted to come to pay homage to the new king. And King Herod didn't want any other kings around, you know, so he told the wise men, listen, you go find him, go worship this new king, and, and when you do find him, come back and tell me where he is, because I'd like to pay him a visit, too. The wise men outsmarted him. They never came back. They never told Herod where Jesus could be found. So now all that Herod knows is somewhere near Bethlehem. So, so because of his rage that the wise men had defied his power, had, had outsmarted him, and, and because of his determination that there never be a rival to his power, King Herod orders that every baby boy in and around Bethlehem, two years old and under, be killed. It would be the surest way to make sure that this new king would, would die. I simply can't imagine that. I can't imagine being one of those soldiers who that night would go home after home after home taking babies out of their mother's arms and killing them in front of them. I, I can't even imagine that. King Herod did that. Before him, you know, if you read the Bible, Pharaoh in Egypt did the same thing. He did the same thing. Moses' mother was bold and, and, and defied also the, the, the human king by hiding her baby Moses in the river. You remember that story, but, but, but lots and lots of babies died, drowned in the river because of Pharaoh. 
it's, it's actually not as rare as you would think that throughout history, people have murdered children, murdered babies. It's, it's, it is evil. And I just want to remind you what the Bible says. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood enemies, but against principalities and powers in this dark world. It's what Paul says. So always remember, our real enemies are not human enemies, not flesh and blood enemies, but our enemy is the devil. Our enemy is a spiritual, invisible enemy. So don't ever get that confused. Pharaoh or King Herod or any person you can name, any ruler, we do not have human enemies, the Bible says. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Jesus says, as I continue to remind you in John chapter 10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy but, but I have come that they might have life. That's what Jesus says. So wherever you see stealing, killing, destruction, that's the work of the devil. So, so let's be very, very clear. Whenever you see evil, whenever you see children die in, in any way, that, that's evil. Now remember, that's the devil. It's not so much that the devil has a problem with us. He hates us, but truly that the devil's battle is with God. It is God that the devil has rebelled against. It is God that the devil hates. But the devil can't do anything to God. The devil can't, his power is no match for God's infinite power. And so the devil simply attacks what God loves, the people that God loves. And, and God loves us. And so that is why the devil turns all of his fury against us. And especially against what the Bible would call the least of these, the most vulnerable. So at any time when the devil rears his head, at any time when the forces of evil begin to, to, to overtake a, a nation, th then recognize you'll see the most vulnerable suffer the most, and you'll see them s suffer in the most significant ways. And, and that brings us to the epidemic, the moral tragedy of abortion in our nation. Who, who could kill a baby? Uh, approximately 1.2 million Babies will be aborted this year in the United States. 1.2 million babies. Now, the word abortion is simply a term that talks about the ending of a baby's life before it's born, before it ever leaves the mother's womb. That's called abortion. And it is legal in the United States. And as I said, 1.2 million babies will be aborted this year. 1.2 million babies. That amounts to, if you do the math, more than one out of every five pregnancies. More than one out of every five pregnancies in the United States will end in abortion this year. I, I, I just can't even imagine those numbers. It's, 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 it's evil. It's, it, it's just evil. So, so here's the... Question, why does the Bible never really mention it? Now, I know, I know, I know. The sixth commandment says thou shalt not kill, and we'll get to that. But, but the Bible really never mentions abortion. And that's probably something that I need to say out loud, even though you don't really want to hear that. Some of you say, well, the Bible doesn't mention it because there's a lot of new things that the Bible doesn't mention. The Bible doesn't mention the Internet either. But you need to understand that abortion's not a new thing. It is as old as pregnant women. Do you understand? As long as pregnant 
uh, women have been on earth, some of them have found themselves in a pregnancy they did not want, a pregnancy that was not happy for them, and they have sought a way to end that pregnancy. It goes all the way back. You know that the Ten Commandments, that the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill, you, you know that the law of Moses is not really the most ancient law code that we know. There are civilizations that predate the ancient Jews, very, very ancient civilizations in China, in, 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 in Babylon, for example. And, and nearly without exception, all of those ancient codes of law specifically mention abortion, specifically. You go to the most ancient primitive codes of law that we have, and they'll typically outlaw abortion, most of them making it a capital offense, which means if you, if, if you commit abortion, if you cause the child in your womb to, to die, then you'll be put to death. That is the, the legal tradition before the Ten Commandments. So I really don't know why Moses never mentions it. it it's really peculiar that it's never mentioned in the Bible. It's strange that Jesus never says a, a word about it. So, so before you really get all up in this and, and act as if this is absolutely clear, I just want to call your attention to that fact that it's really not mentioned in the Bible. And, and that's curious. It's curious. However, as we've said, there are many things not mentioned in the Bible. And, and in that case, what we typically do is look at biblical principles that are clear. You look at the biblical teachings that, that are absolutely clear, and then you try to put those principles together in such a way that it helps us make decisions in our lives today. And, and I'm rather, rather fully convinced that if you look at the biblical principles that you find that are clear, and you begin to apply those to the to the question about abortion, it's rather obvious that, that to end the life of a baby in the womb is a rather clear, a rather clear offense against bedrock foundational scriptural principles. So, so let's, let's, let's talk about them. The, the sixth commandment rather clearly says, thou shalt not kill, right? It, it very simply says, thou shalt not kill. Now, when you talk about thou shalt not kill, understand that, that, that the commandments aren't just there because God says no. Whenever God says no, actually God is saying yes to something else that has to be preserved. So the idea that God forbids the taking of life is, is simply pointing to the very, the, the very foundational principle about God, and, and that is God is on the side of life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they might have life, Jesus says. So just remember, God is always on the side of life. And so when he prohibits for us murder, when he pro prohibits killing for us, he's also in a positive way telling us that it is our responsibility to protect life. It's not just enough to say, I'm never going to kill anybody. Our responsibility becomes to help others live. Are, are, are you with me? And so very, very importantly, the principle here in Scripture is that love compels me. The love of God, the love of Christ, it compels me to protect the lives of others and to help their lives to flourish. Are you with me? It's not enough to say, I'm not going to kill anybody. No, no, no. Your responsibility as a believer is to protect the lives of others and help their lives to flourish. This is our Christian responsibility. So, so let's talk a moment. If the Bible says thou shalt not kill, why is it wrong to kill? What makes that wrong? A couple of things. First off, I would just simply want you to understand this important principle. Persons are sacred. 
Life is, is sacred, but human life is precious. In all of creation, if you read the book of Genesis, when God created the woman and the man, God breathed breath into their lungs, and, and the man becomes a, a living soul. There's no other, no other creature in all of creation that is given that kind of dignity. Nothing else is said to be created in God's own image. But human beings are created in God's own image, and, and the breath in our lungs is holy. Understand, life is sacred. It, it, it is, in other words, uh, holy special to, to God. Life is sacred. Now, of course, for years and years, the, the debate surrounding abortion has been, well, is a baby in the womb a person? Do you extend personhood to a baby that's not yet been born? Or even a fertilized egg, some would say. How can a fertilized egg be a person? It's, it's, it's just a blob of jelly in, in its mother's womb. And if it's flushed out, there's no loss there. That's, a, that, that's what some would say. That, that you can't apply that, that whole category of human personhood to a baby not even born. Now, now, years ago, people had that debate, but honestly, I don't hear anybody saying that anymore. Nobody seems to be arguing that the baby's not a real person or, or that the baby, the fetus in the mother's womb, is, 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 is not alive. Mostly because of technology. To, to take a look at, at these, it's absolutely amazing. This is now 4D ultrasound. Now, when Wade was born, way back in the Stone Age, when we had a baby, we did an ultrasound, and it kind of looked like, like the Doppler weather, you know, where there's a tornado coming. <laughs> yeah, Wade looked like a storm coming, actually. You know, they would say, it's a boy right there. And I would say, what? You know, what? But no, y'all, this is ultrasound these days, 4D ultrasound. This is uh, an actual actual ultrasound picture of a week's old baby inside his mother's womb. Look. Now, prior to our day and age, nobody had this kind of view. But we can see. And early, early on, this baby has a heartbeat. This baby has a blood system completely separate from the mother. Isn't that amazing? This baby has her own fingernails, toenails. Very, very early, this baby is fully formed. Her only job is just to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's what she does over nine months. But look, look, she's beautiful and so small. Next picture. Look at this, another second trimester ultrasound picture. This isn't a baby born. This is a baby inside its mother. This is what we see. This is what we know. Nobody says that this is not a human person anymore. Nobody says that. What they say is that no matter what you say about the baby, those who favor abortion would still say that, that the mother's more important. That this baby may be real and may be alive and may even be a person, but this, this person has no rights until the mother decides to give the baby the right to life. And if the mother is not willing to grant this baby rights, then the mother's rights are the ones that have priority. I, I think that's a fair way of explaining what, what some say. They just simply say that the mother's right to choose is more important than this baby's right to life. 
I disagree. I, I disagree. This baby may be small, but this baby is fearfully and wonderfully made according to Scripture. According to Scripture, this baby is known to God before it's even born. And even before the day it's born, God has already written all the days of its life in his book, Psalm 139. Do you understand? How when you start looking at the principles of Scripture, there's absolutely no way that, that you can possibly rationalize the taking of this life. It, it's a baby. It's a small life, but it's life nonetheless. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk some more in a moment about the, the women who would seek out abortion, but, but let me just say right from the start, it, it is not within a woman's right to choose, a woman's right to preside over the death of another person. That's not your right. It's none of our right. Remember, life is sacred. Remember that the sixth commandment requires that we protect the lives of others. Life is sacred, and the life of this baby is, is sacred. It, it leads me to, the, to really the, the second reason why, why killing is, is, is forbidden for us. Primarily, uh, God alone has the, the ability, God alone has the, the right to give life and to take it away. That, that is the power, that is a prerogative that belongs only to God. He has the right to give life, and he is the only one who can take it away. You and I cannot preside over the death of another person. That, 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 that option, that, that choice is forbidden for us. So whether you are a woman in, in, in what is now for you an unwanted and unhappy pregnancy, understand that does not give you the right now to exercise the prerogative to take the life of the baby growing within you. You may be in a desperate situation, but that does not give you that right. Only God has that right to give life. Only God can give life. You understand? Only God can breathe a breath of life in, 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 into, a, in, into any group of cells and turn them into life. Only God can do this, and only God can take it away. So understand, this principle of the sanctity of life, this incredible, holy specialness that God has granted to human life, this obligation we have to, to, to protect it, just understand that, that it really goes beyond the abortion issue, if you want to call it an issue. That, that in a very, very important way, if life is sacred and if life is important to God, that means every single life is important to God. Every single life matters to God. The life of the unborn and the life of the born. And let's be really, really honest with one another. We're not often very, very loving toward those who are born. We have very little actual compassion for the poor. And I'm speaking to, to us here at our church and Christians throughout the United States. We tend to be very, very wealthy, very, very prosperous, and very, very unconcerned for the plight of the poor. But you understand, their lives matter to God. That Their lives matter. And this principle of life, it, it applies from womb to tomb, all the way through the lifespan. Do you understand? At any place where we put ourselves in the position of, of presiding over the death of others, we really should have a very sort of reverent fear about that. We're beginning to tread into a territory that belongs only to God. Whether you're talking about war, whether you're talking about capital punishment, whether you're talking about ending the life of a terminally ill patient, understand, life is sacred. And it is only God's right to give life and take it away. And in any place where we begin to tread in that territory, we should be very, very fearful, very, very reverent of what God says about life. We don't get to step into 
his role and decide who lives and who dies. But throughout human history and throughout our lives every day, we don't often put a very high premium on the lives of others. Which brings me to the third principle. Why is it wrong to kill? Very, very simply, one of the oldest stories in the Bible. We are our brother's keeper. We are keepers of one another. Your life matters to God, therefore your life matters to me. And I am your keeper, and your life is supposed to matter to me. And that means as, as brothers and sisters to one another, as brothers and sisters in the world, we should be reliable, we should be trustworthy to protect one another's lives. Not just to see that you live, but to see that you flourish. Do you understand? Not just the fact that you live, but the quality of your life. We should be very, very concerned to keep one another and keep one another well. And I think that also applies to the lives of those unborn. We are obligated to be keepers of one another. So very simply, I just want to give you three principles here when we're talking about abortion. And these are principles of conviction and compassion. These are the things we have to hold together. So very simply, here's first principle. We must respect the sacredness of every human life from womb to tomb. Again, it's not just an abortion issue. Sanctity of life is a biblical principle. We must respect the sacredness of every human life from womb to tomb. Which brings me to the second principle. I would have to say this is probably the principle, number two here, that, that we don't say enough in church. And those of us who are pro-life don't often pay enough attention to this. A woman seeking an abortion is desperate and afraid. Love her. Love her. Women and girls don't abort babies because they hate babies. Do you understand? A woman seeking an abortion is desperate and afraid. Love her. Now, one thing you have to really admit, which is hard for some of us to admit, is that sometimes, I know I'm going to, you're not going to like this, sometimes abortion is medically necessary. Sometimes it is. You say, Brother Tim, you don't understand. You just said that life is sacred. I, I know I said that. I, I know it is. But sometimes abortion would be medically necessary. I say this because years ago, my, my very best friend, his name was Jeffrey. He's still one of my best friends. Jeffrey and Tanya got pregnant with their very first baby. We were still in seminary together. And I don't remember if this was before or after we were pregnant with Wade. It was about the same time. We were, we were really good friends. Jeffrey was my running partner, my running buddy. We were all so excited when Tanya got pregnant. You got to understand, Jeffrey and Tanya were preparing for ministry. Uh, they have so much love in their hearts, and they were going to love this baby, and they did, man. From the moment they found out she was pregnant, man, they were in love with this baby. They found out it was a girl, and they named her Katie. While she was still there developing, growing in Tanya's belly, they named her Katie. And then the ultrasounds began to show that Katie was severely malformed. I mean, just severely malformed. It was, it was a horrible a genetic defect, which among other things meant that these um, fluid-filled sacs began to accumulate in her chest cavity and in her, in, her, in her skull. And these sacs just began to fill with fluid, just fill with fluid, which means the brain wasn't really developing well and the, and the organs couldn't develop because everything was just filling with fluid. 
And the, the very last ultrasound that, that, that Jeffrey showed me was just really hard to look at. It was really hard to look at. Because the head, the abdomen were, were just so big and everything else was just so small. And we prayed and Jeffrey and Tanya prayed and just prayed for a miracle that the next ultrasound would show a healthy baby. But the ultrasounds just continued to show this, this horrible malformation, this horrible defect. It became very obvious that, that, that Katie's life inside Tanya was going to threaten Tanya's life. The doctor also said that Katie continued to grow, that, that the more neurologically developed she became, the more likely she would suffer pain. So my friends, Jeffrey and Tanya, had to get an abortion. If Tanya was ever going to not just live but have children again, I, before the day, their fear was that they would have to walk through all of those people out front the abortion clinic screaming, baby killer, baby killer. Because that's not what they were. Jeffrey would say that, that Katie in her entire life inside Tanya knew nothing but love. She knew nothing but love. Jeffrey said a couple of things. Jeffrey said that that day that the, the clinic was full and awful. It's impersonal. It's a horrible experience. But this room is filled with girls and women ending their pregnancies that day. It's, it's not a party in there. Jeffrey said he's the only man there. No other woman in the clinic that day had a boyfriend, a husband, anybody with her. Tanya had Jeffrey, her husband, and and their pastor went. Pastor went. I just tell you that story so you know. It's sometimes medically necessary. A woman seeking an abortion is desperate and afraid. You got to love her. You need to find out what her story is because she matters to God too. Now, not every abortion by any stretch is medically necessary. Hear me. And in those instances when it is not medically necessary, it is sin. And it is something that we need to try to prevent. But, but passing laws is only a very small part of that. We have an entire culture, understand, where, where, where women, women are going to end up seeking an abortion. And, and if we're going to somehow prevent abortion, we've got to come back and figure out how to take care of the women. We've got to be there for them. Now, what you must understand is a woman seeking an abortion it, it, it has an unwanted and what is for her an unhappy pregnancy. Now, just realize that half of all pregnancies ever are unwanted or, or at least surprise. So if you're sitting by somebody right now, one or the other of you is, is a total accident, you, you, you know? Half of all pregnancies were, were not planned. You know, my sister always said it was me. I think it was her. But, <laughs> but bottom line, you know, we're not all that in control of these things. And, and so 
This is a woman who has this unplanned pregnancy, but for her it's an unhappy pregnancy. Now, the vast majority of women seeking abortions are poor, which goes back to the way we treat the poor and the way we try to provide for the poor. Often these women are in poverty, and and the vast majority of those seeking abortions say that the reason that they feel like they have to end this pregnancy is because they cannot afford a, a baby. They can't afford not just to have the baby, they may not have health care, but they can't buy diapers and they can't buy formula. Babies are expensive, understand? And when they say they can't afford it, that's real. That, that, that's real. The other thing they say, and there really are, are, are two primary reasons given by women seeking abortions. The first, financial concerns. They just can't afford to have a baby. Their second concern is the, the fact that they have no support, either from the baby's father, who may or might not even be in the picture now, or if he's in the picture, he's not supporting her having the baby. So, so often, it's this feeling that she has no support, either from the baby's father or from her own family. So this is a woman who says, I don't have financial resources and and I'm alone. I have no support in this. So when I say a woman seeking an abortion is desperate and afraid, you must love her. That means you have to be willing to go back to this woman and and say, I will be there for you. And as a church, if we're going to say that we're pro-life, this is the kind of life we have to live where we take care of these women. You have to be able to say, "I, I will make sure that you're provided for. I will make sure that you have diapers. I will make sure that you're able to have prenatal vitamins. I will make sure that you're able to provide. I'll adopt that baby. I will be there for you, with you. I will do whatever is necessary, but I will not leave you alone. Do you understand? From, in my mind, that's the only Christian response to this horrible moral tragedy of abortion. We've got to say to these women, we'll be there for you. And I will say, in Bowling Green, Kentucky, one of the best ministries for this is the Pregnancy Support Center. This is what they do. This is what they get. That it's not enough just to stand out in front of an abortion clinic with a sign and yell baby killer at her. That's not necessarily what she's thinking about herself. She's desperate. She's afraid. Why don't you go to her in love and say, I will be here with you. I will help you somehow. If we are the people of God, and if we respect the sacredness of life, I see no other Christian response. This is compassion. This is compassion. I don't want you to abort your baby, so I will be here for you in every way possible to see that that's not your only option. We'll find you other options. This is Christian compassion. One more thing, it's the obvious thing. The only answer to the problem of abortion is the gospel of Jesus. We live in a culture that is so so sexually perverse. We live in a culture that is so steeped in, in sin. It is the gospel that is the only answer. And the problem of abortion is simply related to the sin problem that, that, that pervades our, our culture. The only real answer is the gospel of Jesus. But if we don't preach with conviction the gospel of Jesus, with the love of Jesus, nobody's going to listen to us. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, One of the primary medical advisors in the big court case, which was deciding the the abortion issue, the Roe v. Wade case, his name was Bernard Nathanson. He was the primary medical advisor. He was a brilliant, brilliant doctor. 
and at that point, a, a very outspoken and brilliant defender of the right to abortion. He testified in court. He uh, led the, the major councils. He, he was that key, uh, brilliant medical advisor. As you know, Roe v. Wade changed the whole abortion landscape of the United States, and it did become legal. And Bernard Nathanson at that point became what he called the, the chief doctor in the largest abortion clinic in the United States, and he did so proudly. He did so with full medical confidence that he was doing something that was good. But then he just watched medical technology. Bernard Nathanson is an honest man. He started seeing the ultrasound technology, even some of what I showed you today, and he just started looking and paying attention to what we could learn about babies developing in their mother's womb. In the 70s, Bernard Nathanson published a very significant article in the American Journal of, of, of Medicine where he basically says, I'm beginning to become uneasy with this. He's speaking to other doctors, but he said, I'm really be becoming uneasy with, with, with this. It's becoming obvious to me that, that the fetus growing inside the mother's womb is, is something more than just a collection of cells. By the time Bernard Nathanson really changed his mind on abortion, he says he had presided over something like 60,000. 60,000 abortions in his lifetime, in his practice. Bernard Nathanson died in 2011. Before he died, he became a Christian. Somebody asked him, why are you becoming a Christian at this point in your life? He'd always been sort of a Jewish atheist. Why would you, at this point in your life, become a Christian? Bernard Nathanson said, I'm guilty presiding over 60,000 deaths. And Jesus Christ was for me the only offer of forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's the one thing he needed. And Jesus was the only one to offer it. I am likely speaking at this moment to somebody who has had experience with abortion, either a woman who has herself made that choice, maybe a man who is involved with a woman, I, I don't know. And I don't know how this sermon strikes you, I, I don't. I, I'm trying to be very, very careful, respectful of you. But if it's guilt and regret and shame that you feel, I just want you to understand the answer is still the gospel of Jesus. Abortion may be a, a, a very tragic and awful sin, but the forgiveness of Jesus is still greater. You can be forgiven. Anyone who comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. I'll never push away. Come to Jesus. Con confess your sin. He will forgive you. No sin so great that he cannot forgive. Pray with me.
Lord Jesus, it is you and only you who's come to bring us life, an abundant life. Lord Jesus, help us to look around at those who we see, those with the breath of life in their lungs, and help us to respect their life as holy. Help us, Lord, to recognize the incredible specialness of every human being from womb to tomb. Help us, Lord, not just to try not to kill each other, but help us, Lord, to protect the lives of one another. Help us to care about the quality of life of those around us, the poor, the desperate, the alone. Lord, I pray today for the multitude of women who find themselves in a situation of an unwanted and an unhappy pregnancy. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will put in their paths Christians of conviction and compassion who will walk with that woman, who will come alongside her and provide for her needs and show her genuine love and grace. Lord Jesus, we know that it is your love and grace that always makes the difference. Unfortunately, Lord, those of us who know you are not always very quick to share your love and grace. Help us, Lord, always to stand upon unchanging conviction for right and wrong as we see it in your word. But, Lord Jesus, may we never, ever walk out with our convictions without also bringing an unconditional love that comes only from Jesus. Help us to stand for truth, but help us to walk in love. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace and forgiveness that covers over all of our sin. I pray that in this house on this day, men and women, boys and girls will be set free, set free from the guilt and shame of all of our sin. We pray in the blessed name of Jesus.